0: Dear friends of Jesus Christ, a few weeks ago I had lunch with a few uh, missionary-minded pastors in Victoria, and the person sharing during this lunch uh, was a church planter named Jonathan. He's trying to revive an old Anglican church in central Saanich, and uh, it's not been an easy go for him. At the end of our time together, we took a few minutes to pray for Jonathan, uh, we also spent a fair bit of time praying for the ministry of his church and the people who live in Brentwood Bay and Sanishton and all the areas surrounding there. We prayed for the typical things that Christian, you'd expect Christian pastors to pray for. We prayed that God would strengthen Jonathan and protect his family. We prayed that the people of Central Saanich would come to know Jesus and to surrender their lives to him. But then one pastor prayed something that was uh, a lot less typical. At least it's not something that I've ever prayed before. He prayed that God would frustrate the lives of those who live in Brentwood Bay. So if you live in Brentwood Bay, look out. He prayed that they would be brought low so that they might look beyond the things in front of them and cry out to God. I spent much of the day thinking and pondering that prayer frustrate the lives of those who live in Brentwood Bay. And I wonder have you ever asked God to curse your neighborhood? Or have you ever asked that his wrath fall upon your city? Are we allowed to pray for that? God has called out his church and said, You are to be a blessing in the world. Seek the well being of the city in which God has placed you? Shouldn't our prayers reflect that reality? But then again, I suppose it's also true that God sometimes, perhaps often, uses catastrophe as a means to draw people to himself. This pastor wasn't praying for personal revenge. He wasn't asking God to smite the people of Brentwood Bay so that, you know, he could win this battle he had with them. Rather, his fervent desire was for people to be jolted off the slow, wide path that leads to death and come to discover the joy of communion with God that comes through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. I have to say that I spent uh, some more time thinking about this prayer this past week because Elijah prays a similar prayer over the people of northern Israel. His prayers that God would enact the covenant curses in their midst and bring them to repentance. His prayers is that Israel would come to see the powerlessness of Baal and Asherah and be brought back to faith in the living God. The apostle James fills in what is lacking in 1 Kings 17. Elijah was a human being, being even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three and a half years." So Elijah bursts onto the scene while Ahab is king in northern Israel. Ahab, you might recall from last week, was the seventh king in northern Israel. He inherited a stable throne from his father Omri. Omri ruled for 12 years and spent all of them strengthening his country politically and economically one of Omri's strategic moves was to form an alliance with King Ethbaal of Sidon. Sidon was due north of Israel, and it, it at the time was an economic powerhouse, uh, the center of trade, really. But like Israel, Sidon didn't have a lot of military might, and both countries worried about, uh, about Syria to the east, and so they made a pact to protect each other. That pact also included uh, trade, that they could trade with one another. Um, This pact made northern Israel relatively safe and relatively wealthy. All of a sudden, Israelite farmers and merchants had access to the booming markets of Tyre and Sidon, and all the international guests who would come there on boats. They could trade with the world through this relationship with the king of Sidon. And all Omri had to do to secure this partnership was to make peace with Baal and to welcome Jezebel, Ethbaal's daughter, into his family. So the marriage of Ahab and Jezebel, it's arranged by their parents, Omri and Ethbaal. It was the seal of their political partnership. Now Jezebel, as we learned last week and as we will continue to learn as the story progresses, She is quite dedicated to the gods of her father. And so her first order of business as queen is to lobby Ahab to make Baal and Asherah the official deities of northern Israel. Baal, as I mentioned last week, was known as the god of the heavens or the bringer of rain, the one who makes the water fall and then causes crops to grow, Asherah was the god of the night. She caused dew to form in the morning, and it was believed that she uh, she could ensure the f- fertility of land and the fertility of the womb, rain and fertility, food security and family. It's not hard to seal to see the appeal of Baal and Asherah. Today we still bend over backwards to in order and organize our lives around whatever it is that will help us build up our net worth, or whatever it is we think will help our family flourish. Idolatry changes shape over the years, but the gist is exactly the same. Influenced by Jezebel, Ahab made official what Omri tolerated, and in so doing, he actively slammed the door in Yahweh's face. So much for the covenant that Israel made with the Lord at Mount Sinai. So much for being a set-aside nation of priests, set aside to showcase God's ways among the nations. It's easy to look at the situation from the outside and be critical, but try putting yourself in Ahab's shoes. It's not easy being king. If Ahab, Ahab would have ditched Baal, Jezebel would have left him and returned to Sidon. And then King Ephbaal would have nullified his pact with Israel, and that would have ruined northern Israel economically and politically. You don't want to be king when the market is taking a dive, right? Kings do their best to keep the economy going. So Ahab's in this tough spot. The wages of repentance are potentially the destruction or the immediate destruction of Northern Israel. But of course, there's the other side of the equation too. They can continue on with the path of Baal, which has temporary political stability, but long-term destruction. Ahab decides to not repent, and he decides to make Baal the official god of Northern Israel. He wasn't prepared to shake up his kingdom for the sake of the covenant. And I wonder, did he think he would get away with it? Did he think that the Lord would just drift off and find a new nation to partner with? Elijah sees the other side of the equation. When he surveyed northern Israel, he knew that Israel was slowly drifting towards destruction and that Baal and Asho were going to take them to a dead-end road. And he knew that the time was now to take a stand for the Lord. Elijah bursts on the scene in this most mysterious way. Most Old Testament prophets have an origin story, a, a clear calling from the Lord. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Many of the prophets resist the Lord's initial call. Why me, they cry. They don't want the job. But the Lord persists and uses them for his purposes. But with Elijah, we get no such origin story. Scholars don't even really know where Tishbe is on the map. It's almost as if Elijah drops out of heaven. He's a little burst of Godlight. In the dark night of Israel's apostasy, Elijah, his name means the Lord is my God or Yahweh is my God. And Elijah's entire ministry is summarized in the meaning of his name. He will take a stand for the Lord his God. Questions abound regarding Elijah's appearance and initial message. Did the Lord call Elijah... And command him to confront Ahab? Or did Elijah rise up on his own accord? Did the Lord tell Elijah to pray for and prophesy the drought? Or was this Elijah's initiative based on his knowledge of the Lord's word in Deuteronomy 28? We'll get to that later. It's really hard to get to the bottom of these questions because we don't know what happens before Elijah bursts onto the scene. But as the story progresses, it becomes clear that Elijah is so much more than God's mouthpiece. He's an uh, an active participant in the outworking of God's plan. When God speaks to Elijah, Elijah obeys the word of the Lord. And when Elijah prays to God, God heeds the word of Elijah. These two are partners in ministry. Like the surfer and the swell, they come together to showcase the power of God. Now to verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Elijah's initial message is uh, a one-line zinger, I think. It's an announcement that disturbs Israel's modus operandi. Not so fast, Ahab, the message says. You can try to eradicate Yahweh in Israel, but you cannot eradicate Yahweh himself. You can try to wriggle out of the covenant obligations to him, forsake him for other lovers, but the Lord your God is a jealous God and will not forsake his covenant with you. The Lord lives, as surely as the Lord lives. Everyone in Israel is trying to forget about the Lord. Ahab pierces that darkness with the testimony, the Lord lives. And I think we need to let those words sink in. The Lord lives. I know so much of the history of the world is the history of humanity seeking to get out from under the Lord's authority, to keep the Creator at arm's length. Adam and Eve started the struggle. They wanted life in the garden on their own terms, not God's terms. They wanted the goodness of creation without having to live under the authority of their Creator and we've been following their example ever since. And it's so foolish, and it's so prideful. I mean, we, we didn't create ourselves. We live in bodies that we did not fashion or design. We breathe oxygen that we cannot produce. We're dependent on processes of nature that we can influence but can't finally control. We're so dependent. And the proper posture, I think, towards the universe is to, is to thank the one who created all this and to show our gratitude by living in line with his design for life, to recognize our place underneath our creator and to thank him, to live in a gracious gratitude to him. But that takes humility, being content to live on someone else's terms, and that's something we generally kick against. Like the prodigal son in in Luke's story in Luke 15, humanity wants the inheritance the father has to give, but we don't want the father himself. We want him to get lost, take the money, and run, live our own life the way we see fit. So we try to do away with God. We push him from memory, and if he came to earth, we'd crucify him. There is no doubt about that. But yet, the Lord lives. And you can try to flee his presence like Jonah, but he lives, and he's going to track you down. And you can try to take his name out of the national anthem or tear down his temple like Ahab, but the Lord lives, and he will not go softly. He will not go gently away. Israel was set aside to bear witness, to give testimony to this reality that God is, that God is good, that God is powerful. They were meant to be a showcase of God's wisdom and glory to the world around, but instead they pushed God to the side and became exactly like the nations around them. This is why Elijah prays for drought. Show them your power, Lord. Show them that you live. Elijah prays and forecasts that there won't be any rain or dew in the land for a few years. And I think the irony here is real thick, and it's meant to be seen. Recall that Baal was thought to bring rain, and Asherah was thought to bring dew. So there's a bit of poetic justice happening here. The curses match the crime. The drought is to reveal, the, is meant to reveal the foolishness of worshiping Baal in Asherah. It's meant to shake them out of their idolatry and point them to the Lord who lives. But the curse also matches um, the word of the Lord. Elijah's prayer request here isn't novel. He's just like, wow, what should I pray for? And you're like, I guess drought, that will really show him. Like, he's not just coming up with, up with this on his, in his own head. He's reading the book of Deuteronomy. He's simply asking God to stay true to his word in that book and to follow through on the curses of the covenant. In Deuteronomy 28, God describes what will happen to Israel if they're faithful and what will happen to Israel if they're not. And he says, if you remain faithful to the covenant, you can expect blessings, your crops will grow well, your cities will flourish, etc., etc. It's all written out. But if you are not faithful to the covenant, then the land won't bear fruit and your cities will be destroyed. Here's a few of the curses that are found in chapter 28. The Lord will send curses, on you curses, confusion and rebuke and everything you put your hand to because of the evil you have done in forsaking me. The Lord will plague you with Uh, diseases until he has destroyed you from the land. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease, with fever and inflammation. And here it is, with scorching heat and drought, with blight and mildew, which will plague uh, you until you perish. Here's another uh, bit about drought. The sky overhead will be bronze, the ground beneath you iron. Just concrete, right? Working with concrete. Nothing will grow. The Lord will turn the rain of your country into dust and powder. So you have dust storms. And it will come down from the skies until you are destroyed. Woof! So Elijah is not praying and asking God to do a new thing or a novel thing. His prayer is that God enacts these covenant curses in response to Israel's idolatry He's bringing the word of the Lord found in Deuteronomy to bear on a contemporary situation and saying, this is what is needed, Lord, right now. And this, this, I think, is what makes Elijah a prophet. A prophet is someone, we often think that prophets are someone who predict the future. You know, this is is how it's going to be in the future. And there's an element to prophecy that, that does that. But mostly what they do is they look back to what God has previously written, mostly in Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and they take that and they impl- uh, apply that to a contemporary moment and say, this is what the Lord has said. He's gonna follow through on this and you can expect these consequences. So they are reaching back into the history and they're pulling out God's word, and then they're applying it to a contemporary moment. So they work to bring God's, bear, bring God's word to bear on a certain situation. Someone I've been reading who can describe this uh, better than me, and N.B. Vontavere, he describes the prophetic office like this. It's the prophet's calling to work in the name of the Lord... For the continuous conversion of the people, he must bind the covenant people to the law of the Lord. The prophet must maintain the law of Yahweh and zealously urge others to keep it as well. So Elijah is thoroughly rooted, thoroughly rooted in the word of the Lord, and he brings that message to bear in, in the contemporary situation that he finds himself And God ordains him to be his spokesman. Together they will work for the conversion of God's people. And that's really what the curses and the drought are designed to produce. Neither Elijah or the Lord is out for revenge. They are both longing for Israel to repent and to come back into a right relationship with the Lord who lives. Many people, especially contemporary Christians, have a hard time with the idea of God enacting his covenant wrath through curses. I'm so done with that, I've heard people say. My God is a God of love, not a God of wrath. But it's so important to see, I think, that God's wrath does not stand in opposition to his love, rather, his wrath is an extension of his love. Tim Keller really helped me to see this. In his book, The Reason for God, Keller makes the observation that love does not stand in opposition to wrath. Wrath's opposite is not love, but indifference. Imagine if God were indifferent to the idolatry present in Israel. You know, whatever. You guys do what you want. I've been thinking it's maybe time for us to see other people anyway, right? That's not love. That's the opposite of love. That's just, I'm, I'm done with you. I don't, I actually, I don't even really care about you enough to pursue you. When you really love someone, you get genuinely angry when you see them going down a path that leads to destruction. And the more you love them, the more angry you get. Am I right? Because you have deep concern for their well-being. You truly want them to flourish. You know what is best. You know that being in this relationship, this, is, this could be so good, this is so important. We could really thrive in this partnership together, but you're going the wrong way. How am I gonna get you back? The drought is designed to shock Israel off the slow road that leads to death. And that's where Baal and Asherah will take them. The question is, will Israel repent and cast out her idols? Or will they harden their hearts and double down with their bets on Baal? That's the question we'll have to see uh, as it unfolds in the story. But uh, what I'm wondering right now is, Does the Lord still work in this way? Does he still enact the curses of the covenant when we, his people, stray off course? Obviously, it's uh, never easy to interpret the Lord's ways in real time. It's easier when that's made explicit in the scriptures because it's just easier when it's back then and made explicit. And of course, not every catastrophe or natural disaster we have is sent from God and designed to, to produce repentance in us. And I think the story of Job in the Old Testament, it's a, it's a nice antidote to any black and white thinking on this. And yet, as many of you know from hard experience, sometimes you do have to be brought low in order to look up again to the Lord. And to remember that, oh yeah, he lives. And later on in life, you look back on the hard times and say, that was a grace in disguise. For it shocked me out of a dead-end path. The New Testament says that God disciplines those that he loves. That he refines those that he loves. As with last week, this text gives us a lot to think about and wonder, what does it mean for us? And I'll throw out a few things that I'm thinking about today. Yesterday, I found myself wondering about our vacation as a church. God has set apart us to testify to the reality that he lives, to be a witness in this world to God's existence. And I wonder, are we living by faith, leaning out in hope, trusting that as we make plans to, that honor God, God will reveal himself as we go? Are, are we kind of living in fear, operating and living kind of like functional atheists, like the Lord doesn't live and is not involved in our life? I was talking with a pastor friend in northern Alberta recently, um, really jolly, wonderful man, um, and uh, he was very upset with his deacons at his church. Uh, the church he's a part of is, is quite dynamic, it's growing, it's doing interesting ministry, and this pastor says, feels like he's just kind of riding a wave, he's not causing this to happen, it's, it's just happening. Um, and uh, the, the church has a little debt from a building project it did a number of years ago, and if they pay it off little by little, it's not much. They should be done paying off the debt in 10 years or so. Uh, but the deacons really want to accelerate this debt repayment. They want to have the debt paid off in four years as opposed to 10 years. And as I was listening, I'm like, oh, yeah, well, that sounds like a good idea. And, and this, is, <laughs> this, is, this is not how my pastor friend's experiencing that. He's like, no, like, this is, this is wrong. Um, because not only are they were they trying to accelerate the debt repayment, but they were also throttling some of the ministry initiatives that the church was trying to put into practice and causing, you know, uncomfortable financial conversations. So he went to a meeting and he confronted. He's like, look, folks, are we here to be in the black? Are we here to simply have an institution that is good financially, or are we here to bear witness to the reality that the Lord lives and to show that with how we handle our, our resources? The debt will get repaid. Ten years is fine. But in the meantime, we need to bear witness to the reality that the Lord lives. And I've thought about that for a while. I think he's right. And I wonder what that might mean for us, too, in our, uh, our life together. How are we functioning? I also found myself thinking about those covenant curses and how they might help us this morning. Glory again in the cross of Christ. You know, as a man, Jesus upheld the covenant perfectly. He loved the Lord his God with his heart, with his soul, with his mind, with his strength. He always sought the good of his neighbor He did not put his trust in money or food or family. He lived by faith every day, trusting the Father's word above all else. If anyone deserved the blessings of the covenant, it was Christ. But Jesus didn't get the blessings, at least not right away. In fact, he willingly took upon himself all the curses of the covenant, the full wrath of God, in order order that the covenant blessings may be passed on to us by grace and through faith. The man of God hanging on the cross, suffering the full wages of human rebellion, so that you and me can experience the full blessings of life with God. The Lord lives, and that's the prime example His love showed in the sending of His Son, who died on the cross, rose again to new power that we might experience the blessings of communion with God in Christ. Don't go looking for life in other idols. They will always take more than they give. Put your trust rather in the one who lives and loves and works to restore. Repent and find life in his name. Amen.